Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 125 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is a program where we are going through the Criterion Collection in chronological order of theatrical release on all the films associated with Criterion. And so we have been for a while now in the year 1972, and I'm very excited to talk about, uh, you know, really, I think uh, one of the most uh, intriguing movies of that year, and there's been a lot of them that we've talked about, but this is Pierre Paolo Pasolini's The Canterbury Tales. Uh, this is the second part, the middle installment of his uh, Trilogy of Life, which is part of a beautiful box set produced by the Criterion Collection. This film is spy number 633. It follows the Decameron, which one of my guests talked about with me three years ago, back in 2019, when we got to that film. Uh, and then uh, the f- third film in that trilogy is Arabian Nights or A Thousand and One Nights in the Italian. And uh, that'll be coming up in 19 when we get to the 1974 film. So that's a ways <laughs> off. But we are going to focus our attention on this particular adaptation of Jeffrey Chaucer's uh, 14th century classic text, really the foundation in many ways of English literature, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, about the the support or the the, the original kind of establishing materials for this uh, this film that Pasolini did. We are in September, as a matter of fact, it's back to school time, so we're going to get our English lit on, as well as Italian uh, art house cinema. Uh, really high, you know, intellectual fare here, uh, well as as well as the fart jokes and <laughs> pee and all the other body earthy stuff that uh, really is making this film and and this whole set a celebration of life at its earthiest. So let's go ahead and get the guests introduced. Uh, first is Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome back to the show. Hello. It has been uh, it, the world's really changed since 2019 when we last talked about the decameron hasn't it <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i mean the decameron was uh kind of a story set in the days of the black plague and and boy we kind of had our own version of that didn't it we? did it did <laughs> yeah so yeah so you and uh, josh hornbeck and uh, stephen johnson and i got together to talk about the first installment of the trilogy it's great having you back uh, josh was going to be part of this conversation as well but things came up and he wasn't able to join us so too bad about that. I really do miss Josh's input, but uh, you know, we'll we'll have him back on a future episode some other time. And our second guest here today is Dan Humphrey. Dan, welcome back to the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here talking about one of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah, you know, you are a professor at Texas A&M University. You teach film. I'd like to kind of give you a chance to tell listeners a little bit more about your background, and then maybe we can just get into some of your thoughts about Pasolini. You mentioned him as one of your favorite filmmakers. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Yes. Well, like a lot of film professors, when I was an undergraduate, I had uh, wild aspirations for being a filmmaker. And you know, I thought I'd go to Hollywood and be you know, the next David Lynch or something. But at some point, I started reading film theory and, uh, you know, kind of higher level film studies work. And I read a book by Naomi Green called Cinema is Heresy about Pasolini. And I was just so fascinated by her take on Pasolini, who was a filmmaker Mm -hmm. I was fascinated with, but couldn't really understand at the time, you know, when I was 20. And, And in some ways, that book's what caused me to decide, you know, maybe what I want to do is, you know, analyze other people's film. 
things instead of you know, going out into the uh, the rat race of Hollywood. Hmm. And so I finally sort of come full circle after you know going back and doing a master's degree and a PhD and you know a job as a, a film professor by writing my own book about Pasolini, which came out in uh, 2020. Uh, called Archaic Modernism. Uh, and, you know, that was my own kind of attempt to, you know, pay back or enter into the conversation with all of those other scholars of difficult filmmakers like Pasolini who'd helped shed light on them for me. Yeah, so so you said you had kind of discovered Pasolini as kind of a young person. Uh, were there any particular titles of his, any films that kind of first grabbed your attention and sort of pulled you into his uh, very unique body of work? Well, uh, yeah, you know, you always heard about the trilogy of life. And I was uh, a film student at the University of Utah. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And they were these films that had all played, you know, very briefly in Salt Lake City. You know, there was an art house that would show films three days just in and out really fast and mm-hmm. they all played there and you would hear from people that you know oh these films are very explicit uh not compared to pornography of course right. but it's often you know, confused with a uh, friend of mine said he saw canterbury tales uh literally playing at a porn theater and the mm-hmm. audience was not happy <laughs> that's and, not what they came for <laughs> okay well, it wasn't actually a porn movie that they thought it was going to be it was it was x-rated i know i saw in the new york times review which was from 1980 so this movie got a delayed release as a 72 original release but uh it, it did have an x rating because of the uh, probably the the uh, frontal male nudity more than anything else yeah and it actually uh the kind of controversy over the film is part of the reason it was put on the shelf by United Artists for eight mm-hmm. years. You know, and Arabian Nights was also put on the shelf for eight years, or for six years. They both came out in the United States in 1980, long after they played everywhere else. Uh, and it's interesting, because Salo, you know, actually came out in the United States not long after it was finished. It came out in the United States in 1977, and in some ways that's a lot more disturbing and and you know problematic a film for the censors but but united artists went ahead and released that but they held on to canterbury tales and arabian nights until 1980 and then released it without their own corporate logo on the on the posters or the advertisements or at the beginning of the film they created a shell company to just release those because Transamerica presumably did not want to be associated with X-rated films. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, like you just wanted to see these films because everyone talked about, you know, uh, especially in Salt Lake city in the gay community, you know, it was known that Pasolini was this gay filmmaker and there was a lot of homoeroticism in these films. And so, you know, I always wanted to see him, but the video stores in the late eighties in Utah wouldn't buy copies of them because they just also associated the X rating with hardcore pornography. But finally, 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 I got to see him. And, you know, and I was actually kind of disappointed. You know, I expected, you know, more traditional kind of literary adaptations, you know, at least something more like maybe 
Visconti's The Leopard or, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, Fellini's Satyricon. And these films were so fragmented and, uh, you know, kind of deliberately rough. You know, the, the acting is, you know, is hardly what you'd call, you know, kind of uh, method acting or even kind of, you know, kind of classic. Yeah, it's, it's not polished. You know, they're not, you know, developing, you know, these immersive characters that you kind of right. identify with. I mean, they're, they're archetypes, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of comic buffoons, many of them. Right? Well, it's almost Brechtian, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. they're not even really trying some of the actors to deliver a three dimensional performance. And, you know, they're, they're characters who look like they're kind of almost breaking up, you know, practically laughing mm-hmm. situations where they would not in reality be laughing, but Pasolini kept that in. And, you know, I finally come to realize he's doing something really kind of radical, you know, kind of creating these films that are almost as if you're looking at something that would have been made in the time these films were set if they would Mm -hmm. have had motion picture cameras. Yeah, Yeah, I think that verisimilitude is really one of the strengths. And I think there are many strengths of these films. I'd like to kind of get Brad's response to some of the kind of lines of thinking that you laid out there, Dan, just to kind of get us started. Um, well, first I'll just say, uh, like, everything comes full circle because now these releases open with the big MGM lion roar. So <laughs> <laughs> as far as sort of like hiding it now, it's no longer. But um, uh, yeah, I, they, the performances remind me of the stuff that like Rossellini was doing um, you know, things like The Flower of St. Francis and a lot of the uh, Italian neorealism, the mixing of non-actors with real actors. So like what you were referring to, Dan, like the, the, they're almost like just spitting out lines and Pasolini is just using that however he wants. Rather, it does, it, does that help the immersion into the past? No, not necessarily, but these films are also as much of a comment on how we live now, at least how it was in the time that Pasolini made them in the seventies. So he doesn't really care. Um, like you said, if, if, if doing that sort of brings us into a Brechtian realm, if we're like, you know, breaking the illusion of completely transported back into the medieval, medieval ages. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think these, these films, give me that feeling of being in a, you know, kind of a a grimy, you know, unsanitized, non-homogenized, you know, not exactly a primitive world. I mean, there is culture, civilization, arts, technology, but it's, it's pretty down to earth. And I think the casting of these non-professionals and and this cast here, uh, Canterbury Tales does have a, a pretty interesting mix. It's got a lot of British actors, uh, and this is a an interesting sort of progression for Pasolini as he's relocated his shooting uh, uh, sites, his his locations to the British Isles as he's adapting this kind of formative British text, and and, and doing that in a way. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just saying. I think there's something also like re- refreshing about what he's doing with mm-hmm. not only this but the trilogy. Like if we are comparing 
something like The Agony and the Ecstasy, which is a big Hollywood epic, right? Of roughly the same sort of time period, same sort of time material, especially the Decameron. And that's our only frame of reference. What he's doing here is completely different. And again, creates, like you said, David, that that also that feeling of of maybe this really was what it was like back then. Maybe it, it does have this like documentary kind of feel to it. It's certainly an atmosphere. I mean, there are def- there are some flights of fancy as well. There are, there are some filmic things that he does that are not based on you know 14th century life. You right. know, so it's <laughs> it's a really fascinating balance here. But I'd like let's maybe let's maybe back up just a little bit and talk about the the source material and where Pasolini was at with this trilogy. Um, Dan, maybe I'll give you a shot to talk about what was the genesis of this whole project. You know, Pasolini uh, had made a, a whole variety of films, neorealist films, and then he embarked on this trilogy of life. Uh, what what was his inspiration uh, to say, let's take the Decameron, Canterbury Tales, and Arabian Nights, and, and adapt these kind of classical texts in three different languages from past eras. Uh, what was he trying to accomplish by revisiting the past rather than the more contemporary settings that he was perhaps best known for in his 60s films? Well, he was becoming more and more, I mean, disillusion doesn't quite capture it, more and more despairing about the direction of the world, about mm-hmm. the then modern world of the 1960s and the rise of globalism. And, you know, it's actually the hundredth, it's the centenary of his birth this year. So everyone's mm-hmm. talking about Pasolini this year. And one of the things everyone says is that, you know, he truly was a visionary. Like he, he saw the, uh, you know, the destruction of the environment. He saw, you know, in some ways, the destruction of all the kind of indigenous cultures around the world into this mm-hmm. kind of homogenized global culture, which he, you know, really hated uh, the erasure of, of kind of small, distinct communities uh, around the world and, you know, the way in which everyone was becoming kind of a mindless consumer mm-hmm. and, you know, living in kind of late capitalism. So as, as time went on, you know, he began with the exception of, of basically two films, uh, Tiarima, uh, which was 68, 1968. Mm-hmm. And then Salo, uh, which was 75 in terms of their production and premieres. Uh, aside from those two films, most of his, you know, films after really the Hawks and the Sparrows in 66, they were all set in the past. You know, mm-hmm. he just kind of gave up on the, on the contemporary world. And when he showed it, you know, it was really a dark vision of, of the 20th century. And he said in a number of interviews that, you know, by showing the past, he was, trying to offer a rebuke of the present to show, you know, what we'd lost, you know, uh, people prior to, you know, a kind of alienation and a kind of repression of of Mm -hmm. sexuality. So, you know, in that way, he was critiquing the present with, with all these films from the past and also in some ways kind of showing, you know, where we started to go wrong. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Because by, by invoking these names, I mean, a lot of people who've never read either the Decameron or 
the Canterbury Tales or the Arabian Nights, they still know about them. We know the Shahrazad. She told her stories, you know, then kind of left them with cliffhangers so that, you know, she could be spared another day and et cetera. And, you know, the Canterbury Tales, the pilgrims are on their way to Canterbury Cathedral. They tell each other stories along the way to pass the time. And the Decameron has that same kind of structure. But people may not really understand or, or have immediate personal experience reading these texts. And when you do, you find out, wow, these are pretty, you know, in, in many cases, you know, smutty, tawdry tales that are full of sexuality, mischievous behavior, uh, you know, infidelity. But it's it's done without apology, without scandal. It's just, you know, that's just how people are. And uh, yeah, so this is a sort of a pre-Victorian world, a, a world in which uh, even though there was still, you know, faith and spirituality, it wasn't maybe as hung up or repressed. I think you were kind of, you know, getting towards that, Dan. Um, Brad, you want to maybe pick up on that theme as where, what, what's Pasolini trying to deliver to his viewers in terms of a positive sort of constructive statement in these films? Yeah, much to what Dan was saying, um, Pasolini often said he wanted to uh, show us the how we were before like capitalism before mm-hmm. capitalism uh drew uh you know sexuality in our bodies and made a you know, put a price on those things which he like f- completely goes with with sallow obviously yeah. but this was a time before that kind of corruption where um it's about these three films like say sexuality is like liberated uh celebrated i mean there are there's a gamesmanship. There are power dynamics going mm-hmm. on here, mm-hmm. but it is again not the same sort of like uh, soul destroying commodity uh, that we had, you know, turned into. And he, he was wondering, like, is that did that start here at these Middle Ages, you know, uh, down into the Renaissance and and eventually into the modern world? Uh, is that what we lost? We keep thinking how you know progressive we all are and uh all the new technologies and everything that's come since you know the end of the medieval ages onward to the modern day but what at what cost what what kind of values did we leave behind Mm -hmm. yeah and the fact that the sexuality in these films is not restricted to the young the taught and the beautiful you know i mean there there are there are some people who are conventionally uh sexually attractive and and you know they're kind of in the prime of their life but there are some older lumpier bodies on display as well and and that that's just the thing it's 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 not it's not eroticism that's played up in that pornographic way you know focusing on the mechanics of the sex act or the ecstatic reactions or whatever it is that you know people get their get their jollies from but it's just sexuality as a thing that happens between people and all the complications that that come along with it you know desire betrayal cheating uh you know just the the sort of raw enjoyment of a of a moment you know nobody's looking we can do this it'll be fun i mean he's he's really sort of laying the whole sort of uh, menu out there of how uh sex affects our lives and and sort of drives our behaviors you know whether it's looking for that outlet ourselves or reacting because the people that we thought were sort of our exclusives are out doing their own thing so yeah i mean it, it is it's it's 
to me, it is, it feels celebratory and, and liberating. Um, even, even if you don't live that, uh, promiscuously yourself, I mean, he's, he's sort of laying it out there as, as just how life is and portraying it in, in cinematic ways that I think are actually highly entertaining and, and quite amusing, uh, without being what I would consider exploitive or, you know, mindlessly titillating. I don't think he's going for lowest common denominators in kind of a crass way, uh, even though you know that the humor is is pretty pretty lowbrow in many instances. Well, he does something really interesting in that you know, again, on the one hand, like a lot of the sex, they're not even trying to make it look realistic. No, you know, sex is conveyed by by a man lying on top of a woman who doesn't, and he doesn't even thrust. You know, right? They're not. They're so they're just kind of lightly sketching sex as opposed to detail. Yeah, I mean, there there are some that that are more vigorous than others, and I think the 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 one scene I think you're thinking to in the beginning was the sort of effect of a of a dirty old man who's sort of taken a young woman because he's wealthy and can get away with it. You know, Uh, a rape nights. I probably should jump ahead, but there are a lot of uh, sex scenes in that where you know. They just put a guy on top of a yeah a, a man on top of a woman, and they don't you know, and they're supposedly having sex, but right, it's a it's a signifier, that. right? <laughs> but then on the other hand, he's like as you say, hyper realistic in that you know virtually none of these bodies are you know so created mm-hmm. bodies. They are not yeah. bodies that have spent you know two hours a day for the last five years in the gym. And he also would go out of his way to to get actors with crooked teeth, you mm-hmm. know, because he said, uh, you know, that that's a signifier of the third world, a signifier of of the past, kind um, of life in the raw, not not yeah. cosmetic and buffed up and and idealized right. with some technology. Right. But then they smile and their teeth are kind of crooked, but you know, but then you realize they're still beautiful even with crooked teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's different. You know, it's beauty before uh, capitalistic objectification of the body. Mm-hmm. And there's a crudeness, like what you were saying, David, of everyone's dirty, everyone's filthy. Uh, we've, you know, we're not in these like beautiful, clean bedrooms of like, you know, the Hollywood and everything. Right. Is- is slick and that's the best place the gauzy shots the the swelling music you know exactly right (laughs) no and and no one cares about you know crooked teeth or you know that i have mud on my feet or anything like that and almost every time you see a bed he makes sure you see the chamber pots yeah oh yeah yeah so you know that it just smells like excrement in those bedrooms there's all those chamber pots there all right. Well, I think we laid a pretty good background or foundation for the film. Um, uh, how do we want to go about it? I mean, there's there's eight stories that are told here. There are 24 tales altogether in the Canterbury text, and uh, you know, there's critical and academic debates about whether that was the complete book. Some of the tales were kind of unfinished or cut off, or at least portions no longer survive. So, we'll forego all of that. But you know, certainly Pasolini was making some editorial decisions as he chose particular stories, and in some cases, even like small bits that were from prologues. You know, the way the book is structured, you'd have characters introducing 
their story or there might be some interaction between the pilgrims. So you're getting to know the personalities of not only the, the characters in these stories, but the people telling the tales. And I've been listening to the Canterbury Tales on audiobook, and it's pretty interesting if you really look at the variety of characterizations and situations that Chaucer is covering here. He shows incredible range and diversity because each of the stories is told in a very distinctive voice by a narrator who brings their own sort of personality and perspective to the tale. You don't get that same effect here in the film because he's kind of dispensed with that conceit. I mean, there is an opening scene set in London. They do eventually make their way to Canterbury, but it's not like, you know, you're stopping to hear the characters talking to each other along the way. The stories just kind of are portrayed, adapted, you know, in some cases, very like literally, you know, straight quotes and everything from Chaucer's text. Other times Pasolini is taking little bits here and there and amplifying them into you know, much different scenarios, perhaps, than what Chaucer had in mind. Um, but yeah, do we want to just kind of go through the stories and just talk about some of our favorite moments? Does that seem like a, a good approach or is there some other way? Well, let me just, before yeah. we do that, point yeah. out that when the film was first shown at the Berlin Film Festival, mm-hmm. it was 27 minutes longer than the version we have now. Yeah. And supposedly people in the room, uh, the producer Alberto Grimaldi and the editor and maybe Pasolini himself just could see it was not playing well and mm-hmm. shifting in their seats and seemed really impatient. And so he ordered Pasolini to cut it down like at the festival. Yeah. Which is amazing to think of because, you know, they were literally cutting into, you know, a release print of the film and splicing it back together with tape. Uh, and running all those tape splices in it. Uh, And, uh, you know, they took out one whole story and they took out a lot of that connecting material Mm -hmm. of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury. Uh, And some people, I'm sure, kind of feel that that the reason this film seems so fragmentary is, is because of that. But I think it's also important to remember if you look at Medea, uh, which Pasolini made in 1970 or came out in 1970. Uh, if you look at his version of Oedipus Rex, I mean, those are very fragmentary too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he'll like just jump ahead like several years, uh, you know, skipping past some of the most famous aspects of, of the legend of Medea. And so, you know, I feel like he kind of took the opportunity that the producer gave him, or, you know, or basically ordered him, like, you know, take out half an hour now. You know, this mm. film is not playing well at two and a half hours. Uh, to make it more fragmentary. And so when a lot of people say, you know, what's wrong with Pasolini? Why didn't he film the connecting tales? He actually filmed them, and, and he and apparently the first audiences of Berlin did not like it that way. Mm. And so he did something that, uh, that Terrence Malick apparently does. You know, he makes films like uh, The Thin Red Line and uh, what's the one about? The Tree of Life. John Smith, uh, The New World. Oh, The New World, right. Mm-hmm. Or apparently like the original first cuts of those films 
uh, look pretty much like very traditional movies. And then after he's done that, he goes in and takes a lot of it out to make it much more fragmentary, mm. dreamlike, and uh, free associative. So, you know, I think this idea that, that, that a lot of people had in this film, for years, people thought The Canterbury Tales was Pasolini's worst film. Hmm. Uh, I know that uh, Mauricio Viano, who wrote a book on Pasolini, came right out and said it's his worst film. Uh, I think Naomi Green, who wrote the book, got me into film studies uh, about Pasolini, said it was bad. But, but you know, if you look at it along with all of his other films, you know, they're all fragmentary, and I think he actually, in some ways. You know, makes it more dreamlike, makes it more seem like a fragment from the past, which is actually what Chaucer left us with, as you were saying, David. You know, like like all of the Canterbury Tales doesn't survive, and he died before he finished it. So, mm-hmm. so, so it's it was a fragment all along, and he just made it more fragmentary. And he changed the order too. Initially, the uh, the Friar's Tale was, I think, second to last, and now it's second one now his edits must have made a, some kind of a positive impression because this did win the what this is it the golden bear at the berlin film festival that yeah. year so a film that's edited on the fly that was seen as maybe uh unsuccessful by its own director producer and audience members gets a 20 some minutes cut out and then wins i don't know what the competition was like that year or if this was a uh, a recognition or a celebration of Pasolini's uh, talent, uh, or you know his achievement here. But but with those flaws that you're pointing out, uh, what was the what was the basis for it winning the award? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, there there is a sense that you know sometimes people just think someone is overdue to win. You know the grand prize at their film festival. You know they've entered several times before and haven't won. You know it's hard to tell. People yeah. like Laura Betty thinks Pasolini really hurt the film when he cut it down. You know okay. she, was, she was upset. Uh, who was you know, one of Pasolini's? And, and those cuts are pretty much lost, right? I mean, there's there's some special features on the disc that talk about. You know they got some still images and maybe little snips here and there, but. Seems like they made the cuts and threw them away. Yeah. No, she ended up running Pat, the Pasolini Foundation. When they restored them in the '90s, she said she went to every lab in Europe looking to see if she could find, mm. you know, those outtakes, and it just lost. Hmm. But so you know, it's sad. We'll never, you know, like you just wish people would have set aside one copy of the original version somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems so so reckless, especially in our modern times. That's a tale as old as time, as far as the <laughs> filmmaking world. Yeah, we're still hunting for Wells's Ambersons. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that <laughs> that one's pretty notorious there. But yeah, you just feel like you know, let's let let cooler heads prevail. We don't have to make these edits so drastic and permanent, right? Um, but yeah, so you know, I would I would not see this as a failed film. I do understand that it is a film that probably is going to have a lot of challenges for um, a lot of viewers because of you know we've already talked about some of the sort of the explicit materials and and all that and and even some of the comedy. You know, it's not even 
traditional comedy. Uh, you know, maybe the jokes don't land in an obvious way um, because they're not set up even in that sense. It's really more the the ironic, um, you know, the the amusing conditions or situations that the characters find themselves in. But you the have to sort of get on board with it. Go ahead. The comeuppance that everyone gets. Yeah, everybody's basically dealt with a measure of justice, you know, and that's that's really, uh, I think, one of the the kind of more humane and and actually compassionate aspects of this film. I think it is, as I think I've already said, this is a celebration or an affirmation of life um, that is ultimately uplifting, uh, even though there's a lot of you know darkness. In particular, this film does focus quite a bit on on death and and suffering and there are some definitely some horrible moments i think especially you get into that that second story but let's let's maybe kind of go back to the talking about the tales themselves and maybe kind of doing it that way so let's let's talk about the miller's tale this is one of the most famous stories from the canterbury tales as far as its reputation and kind of wider renown is concerned we've already alluded to the fact or the you know mentioning the the older man and his younger wife is an older man named January, of course, uh, the cold, one of the more brutal months of the year. And uh, he decides at a late stage of life, he wants to be a married man all of a sudden. He's wealthy, he's powerful, you know, uh, men shake in their boots when he raises his voice and gives orders. But he That's decides one day, go ahead. That's the merchant's tale. This is the merchant's tale. Oh, the yeah. merchant's tale. Oh, you're right. I got it mixed up. Okay. That's the merchant's tale. So that's the first one. Um, so, but he decides to take on a wife named May, and uh, so it's a January May romance, I guess you could say. <laughs> and and it, so to me, yeah, this was kind of a story of of greed and avarice, um, pride and and arrogance uh, that that's brought low in what was probably, at least in some circles, a a sort of a traditional age mismatch of a of an older man taking on a younger wife, uh, a young woman in sort of her prime. And she finds herself saddled to this, you know, grizzled old dude who's maybe got the money and can show her a comfortable life, but leaves other uh, needs and, and desires unsatisfied. So what did you guys think of the merchant's tale? Um, well, one of the things I loved about it was uh, how it, there's uh, Greek mythology that dabbles into this one as well. Um, yeah. So once mm-hmm. the merchant is struck blind, I can't remember how. Um, there, but he's he, he just wakes up blind one day, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. And so he has uh, his new wife locked in this like opulent garden, and she can't escape. And she's trying to obviously sneak in uh, her much younger lover that she'd rather fool around with. But um, the gods Pluto and Persephone are strolling through the garden, and it reminds me of Greek mythology in the way that the Greek gods were fucking with everyone's lives, right? <laughs> uh, Pluto, Pluto uh, uh, grants, at the, at the crucial moment at its climax, uh, Pluto grants sight to uh, the old man, and uh, just as easily, uh, Persephone grants the gift of gab to the wife. So he's able to see that she was cheating on him, but then, uh, uh, because of Pluto, but then Persephone... Uh, is able to uh, grant the wife the ability to talk her way out of it. So. <laughs> right. She uses her feminine wiles, her flirtation, her right. sweetness, uh, her husband's desire to get back in good standing, even though he's just sort of been provoked and outraged by by what he saw. So yeah, it's it's the gods themselves sort of mingling into our own 
consciousness and our own uh, response to, to life's dilemmas. And it's interesting that two performers who play the Greek gods are, I think the two performers in the whole film who, you know, look like they could be models. Yes. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like he has a really buff body, you know, sure. no body fat. She's just perfectly proportioned according mm-hmm. to kind of classic well, levels of beauty. They, they are gods, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so they are, they are that ideal. And I think, I think this is a, maybe a common observation, but Pasolini really cast for looks. He had this, it seems like he had this visual sense of here's the character. This is what they look like. Find me the face, find me the body and whatever they can do acting, you know, that's almost secondary. So in a sense, he was using his cast like, like models, you know, to, to paint a picture. Right. Yeah. This film was famous. He would, for that he would just kind of go around England and like the look of someone and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, come be in my film. Uh, I know, uh, I think his editor on one of those documentaries that's on the criterion disc says that some of the people that he had playing these kind of rough, uh, characters, uh, you know, the, the more kind of street criminals, he said they really were like street criminals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He said that it was, pretty clear that they literally didn't even know how to read mm-hmm. like in the you know when they were like uh doing camera tests with them that's like that he realized they couldn't read the piece of paper that was yeah you know had the lines of dialogue on it but he cast them anyway you know because yeah. they brought something to it a different yeah. kind of verisimilitude you know yeah yeah J- just say this look at the camera or don't look at the camera <laughs> and this is what you're supposed to do right uh other thoughts i mean i think it's a it's a pretty uh elegant and and pretty i don't know i guess i'll just say it's a it's a winsome way to get the the viewer into the story because it's it's a story that i think produces laughs uh you sort of laugh at the you know the comical old man you sort of feel for his young wife which that, that was josephine chaplin right well right, in his original the, the cut that premiered at uh at berlin that story was i believe first or second i think first mm-hmm. or, or okay. no now first yeah now it's first right Actually, it was way toward the end and okay like a, actually uh a brilliant decision uh mm-hmm. decision shall we say uh to like start off with a really good one yeah uh, yeah you know you need to like hook people right away uh mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the more kind of traditionally entertaining ones in the tale from the from the collection he uses, mm-hmm. it's interesting that it's uh, Charlie Chaplin's daughter who plays May. Yeah, and uh, and then of course the the Cook's Tale. tale <laughs> yeah, the Chaplin uh, tribute there, right? Has uh, Nanetto Davoli uh, doing a tribute to Charlie Chaplin, and that's filmed like a silent film, a la Chaplin or the yeah well it's a little bit ahead of our sequence but let's just go ahead and get into it uh one of the sort of the contextual details of this film is that Nanetto Davoli was Pasolini's lover at this time but uh, they were in the process of breaking up because Nanetto decided he was going to get married to a woman um I don't know a lot more of the details than that the Davoli definitely is a very prominent uh character in the Decameron 
you can see the way it's it's kind of like how Godard filmed Anna Karina. You know, you could just sort of see the love coming through in the camera there. Uh, and Davoli's got a great face, and and I mean, what he does, he does extremely well. Very striking, very memorable. But like I say, they were in the process of breaking up, which kind of bit, cast a bit of a shadow, at least in Pasolini's um, you know mindset. He he said later on that. He wasn't really in the same in the right frame of mind to, to make this film. And I don't know if that was maybe him responding to some of the criticisms and then the negative feedback that he got. Um, I don't know, Brad, do you have any thoughts on just kind of that dynamic? And we can talk about the Cook's Tale and, and Davoli's kind of Chaplin-esque romp there. Sure. I'm, I mean, it's interesting if they were breaking up because um, Davoli is also in the Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, in a very like provocative scene. Um, yes. So I, I don't know. I mean, everyone kind of wants to say that this is the darkest of the three of them because Pasolini was breaking up with with his lover. But I mean, I don't know how much of that is just, you know, everybody wanting hindsight, to, right? Yeah, hindsight, everybody wanting to, you know, put this in a, you know, a nice frame that's easier to understand as to why this one's darker than the others. It could just also be that he liked the darker elements of of the Canterbury Tales as mm-hmm. opposed to them not being as dark in the Decameron or uh, in the Arabian Nights, at least with the stories that he chose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Pasolini you know, said both. He didn't actually go around telling people that I'm breaking up with my same-sex lover. Uh, but he talked about how, how unhappy he was at the time he made it and that that fed into the, the kind of cynicism and darkness of the film. But he also said in interviews that that Chaucer was darker than Boccaccio. And so mm-hmm. it goes back to the original material. That's what I would assume. I mean, my frame of reference for these stories is just these three films, but mm-hmm. I, it just sort of seems to me, based on the selection that he picked, that Chaucer has a, a more bleaker point of view. Um you know, you could say that England is a bleaker country. You know, maybe yeah. they were happier in Italy. They were ha- maybe they were happier in Arabia. Um, you get more sunshine they, down south. You know? Yeah, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, of the three works, Arabian Nights, The Camera, and Canterbury Tales, Canterbury Tales is the most recent. And he said that that at the time that was written, Chaucer was beginning beginning to see the rot uh, within the bourgeoisie, just as mm. it was beginning to mm. emerge. And yeah. so, you know, that again gets to his kind of critique of, uh, of, the, of the bourgeois class and the rise of capitalism. Uh, and you, you mean you can even say like the origins of the Canterbury Tales, right? Like they're on a pilgrimage to Thomas Beckett, who was killed by like king henry the second's men out of a dispute between church and state so already that is kind of suggesting some sort of uh rot in place even you know a few hundred years before the canterbury tales was told well and speaking of dark themes and dark topics let's talk about the friar's tale which is definitely you know the flat-out grimace because of the what's depicted on screen. Basically you have a character known as a summoner. He was a, basically a 
I think he's kind of an enforcer of, of canon law. Like if you broke the rules of you know church and state kind of intermingled as one powerful entity, uh, you would be, you know, caught by the summoner and be told that you've got to come and, and pay the price, whatever that might be, whether it's imprisonment, fines, capital punishment, whatever. And in this situation, uh, the summoner is spying out two men or you know, several men who are having sexual, you know, relations with each other and because that's against the the law um, they are caught and and basically arrested only the difference being that one of the men who's wealthy and is able to pay an extorbitant exorbitant sum is granted his freedom uh, whereas another man who's basically penniless is is you know put to death and not just executed but but really tortured in a in a pretty cruel and 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 horrific way um but but there's a that element of sadism because he's put on the griddle as they call it which is basically a metal rack with a fire lit underneath him with all of the uh the locals the townspeople gathered in a solemn sort of uh congregation if you will around this courtyard where the man is put to death and it seems like they're compelled they have to watch it silently uh to get whatever lesson is is meant to be taught by this by this execution um that's not these are not elements that are fully present in chaucer uh, pasolini kind of ramped things up a little bit there but what are you guys thoughts about this particular story because we go from kind of the, the mirthy and even somewhat whimsical uh, fairy tale of of, of the uh, of the merchant's tale to something much darker much more intense yeah, I mean, it's kind of a disturbing tale, not just in what you see, but in mm-hmm. also in the way Pasolini presents it. Uh, mm-hmm. And the poor man is, you know, is being, you know, brought out to be executed and you know, tied to the pile of wood that is then set on fire. You know, he's just frantic, mm-hmm. screaming and kicking his legs up in kind of a pathetically comic way. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's almost as if you're more disturbed because, you know, Pasolini chooses to go in the opposite direction than you think he might. You know, he doesn't give the guy a sense of tragedy so much as a sense of, of you know, this kind of pathetic character acting. Yeah. Dying. Yeah. I mean, some people might even find it kind of funny in kind of a, a twisted way because he's so, you know, he, he he's yelping and kicking and just kind of going bananas um and maybe if his fate had not been quite as as horrifying it, it could be seen as kind of a comical performance right uh and, you know, and there were a lot of people who for years you know talked about pasolini being having kind of a self-hatred associated with his homosexuality mm-hmm. and you know when the first generation of of gay scholars and gay critics started looking at Pasolini's films. You know, he was very controversial. Some people really liked him, but other people, you know, especially after Solo, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this guy needs some therapy, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, his gay characters are often really, or, or not even gay, because he wouldn't use that term. You know, he, uh, and scholars wouldn't either. You know, there, there's no such thing as kind of the gay subject uh, in the Middle Ages. There were sodomites, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of 
category of, of person and and people who thought of themselves very differently than, than people later would think of themselves when they primarily had sex with with people of the same sex. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. But, uh, but but in a way, it does sort of like you know increase the horror, you know, that he's kind of this pathetic character, and then the guy uh, who you later see is the devil uh, who's there. You know, he's selling brittle cakes, as he says. Yeah, yeah, uh, kind of a, a sick joke they there. Brittle, they're frying him, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and guys like selling. You know, basically the food equivalent mm-hmm. of that. You know, in a weird kind yeah, of- with, with kind of this cold indifference. It's that that's the thing. It's just and and it kind of like when we talked about the Pied Piper. You know, uh, the Middle Ages was not just all pomp and you know, f- fun and games. <laughs> there was a very dark, serious side to the the authority of the church and its willingness to, you know, make you know examples of people that fell out of their favor basically a form of domestic terrorism against the the broader populace. Uh, So I I thought, you know, that was actually a pretty uh, courageous direction for Pasolini to take it into um, because it, 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 it just lends a different note to what might otherwise be seen as kind of a, kind of a, an earthy sex comedy uh, film that, that uh, is kind of where he goes in some other uh, subsequent scenes. And I think there, there's a, I mean, there's always a tendency, it seems to me, um, when we talk about uh, gay directors in the past, and, and like I, I would jump, I would lump Visconti in here too, that mm-hmm. these directors that had such, um, you know, internalized homophobia and so much that it like bled into their work. And these messages are always contrary to um pride right like that's not Hmm. what we want to tell future lgbt kids how to feel about themselves and so i i but at the same time i these are not unimportant like the the history of internalized homophobia um through generations is valid and important and uh i think that that's i think i feel that sometimes maybe that's where people get kind of confused as to mm-hmm. what exactly is the message here that uh, Pasolini wants to give to me about homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, but I, but I think it works on another level because it's, I don't really think that Pasolini is saying that homosexuality is bad. The crime is that he's poor. That's the, right, the, exactly. the joke, right? And it's right. much more of a criticism of, I mean, hypocrisy within the Roman Catholic church, which mm-hmm. existed mm-hmm. then existed now, um, exists now. And that's more what's on target here. And also like even the other level is that the devil himself is the one instigating all of this. Um, yeah. That this is all the trickery of the devil just being mischievous. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. know, was so brilliant too. Right. And so, yeah, the effect you get from that is you don't think, oh, this sodomite is so pathetic. You know, you don't think that. You think, why are they presenting him as so pathetic? Mm-hmm. You know, which is different. And so I think Pasolini kind of wants you to turn against the film at that moment. Mm-hmm. Because 
you come away thinking, you know, even though this guy's poor, even though this guy's kind of a joke, you know, he did not deserve to be, you know, burned alive. Right. Uh, right. And Pasolini did that in Solo, too. You know, there's all this horrible stuff going on. And, and Pasolini wants you to kind of hate the film. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I'm reminded in Solo when there's one part where they outlaw out all vaginal sex. Only anal sex is allowed. And that can be read <laughs> as a very homophobic thing. I mean, it is mm-hmm. a very homophobic thing mm-hmm. to do. But again, it's what you were saying. You, you know, Sally, you want, he wants you to hate the film. Yeah, and, and, and hate the reality that if you're rich enough, you can buy your way out of pretty much any trouble that the system wants to throw at you because you're on the upper level, you're on the inside track. So it's really not about the justice or the truth of the matter. It's just, you know, how does money, you know, pave your path? And if you don't have it, you're, you know, you're basically toast. You're, so, you're a, a citizen above suspicion, to quote another Italian. <laughs> right. Yes, one of my favorites from this era. Well, let's move on. I, I started going about the Miller's Tale. This is, um, this is, this is one of the more elaborate stories, and this is again where we get into some of the you know kind of vulgar fart jokes, especially the way it kind of builds to this <laughs> a comical punchline involving a red hot poker there. But uh, yeah, anybody want to kind of just summarize that story or pick out any moments that uh, that stood out to you? I mean, this one has a lot of similar threads to the Merchant's Tale mm-hmm. with yeah, um, an up. elderly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. An elderly Miller has a beautiful young wife, and then a scholar or apprentice that lives with them who is really really young and obviously wants to to bed said hot young wife, um, and. But this time, there's no gods intervening here, and he's the he's less of a the mill, old Miller is less of a angry, uh, you know, awful man the way the merchant right. was. That this is more of a, a, just a trickery for these two young people to be able <laughs> to get together. And then, yeah, to add to the complication, there's this third guy, young man who also wants to uh, her earlier philandering yes. <laughs> you know, partner there. Right, right. <laughs> So yeah, basically it's just it's just kind of a comical sort of three way four way mix up thing, um, and the 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 older man the 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 husband is kind of a gullible fellow as well because he's mm-hmm. snookered into thinking that this this young rival he doesn't really see him as such but he's he's you know that's how it turns out is in this kind of religious ecstatic trance and he's predicting the end of the world and he's and he's using that that kind of claimed but ultimately false authority to order the husband to, to to take some certain steps because the end is nigh so again getting into some of the superstition and and credulity of of this medieval era so the they they build these buckets up in the rafters because uh, there's going to be another flood that like Noah's flood that's going to come and sweep them away <laughs> but it's just a very elaborate ruse so that the the wife and her, her lover can sneak away once the old man falls asleep and that's where you get into the whole farting in your face and you know the the, the revenge it's it's <laughs> it's probably funnier to watch it than it is to describe it but it's uh probably <laughs> one of the moments that sort of stands out just because it's it, i don't know it's just so absurd you know when when the first it's the wife sticking her butt out the window and ripping one in the face of of the this young pest <laughs> And so after she's had her had her fun, the, uh, the her 
lover of the moment decides he's going to get in on the game <laughs> ends up paying a, a price uh when when the uh, thwarted young man has come armed with a little something extra for him oh i just want to say that that this is the scene that plays the, the best with a big audience yeah 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 and 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 the film as a whole actually plays really well with an audience these days. If you watch this film at home alone, you know, on your big beautiful, you know, seventy-seven inch, you know, system or whatever, right? You, know, you can kind of understand, you know, the people who say, "Well, this one's you know a lot darker than than the other two, and and it's not really that funny, and it has these dark." you know, disturbing moments in it. And and it does have dark, disturbing moments in it, as we've talked about. But but the one time I saw this with like 150 people mm. uh, at George Eastman uh, House in Rochester, New York, they changed the name to George Eastman Museum. But they, they showed the whole trilogy uh, mm. over the course of three weeks every Thursday. Uh, okay. Whole new restored prints. Uh, and... You know, and people were laughing at this, you know, like it was, you know, Tootsie or something, you know, just hysterically laughing at the film. Yeah. And, and I think kind of lowbrow humor, you know, like, especially if you're not particularly lowbrow yourself, when you, when you look at it at home alone and, you know, you're a criterion aficionado and you're like, oh, well, this is kind of in poor taste. But when you see it with a big crowd, people people really respond well to the humor in this film. And, and I yeah. this scene particularly when uh, uh, when the Miller, you know, thinks that the floods come and he... <laughs> yeah, chops the rope there. Yes. barrel thinking that the floodwaters are rising and the barrel just crashes to the ground instead yeah. of... Hitting it's, the a, it's a great punchline. It's a like this big long setup to get us there. You know, yeah. just watch it with the big crowd if you ever get the chance, because it plays very differently with with the crowd than than it does. You know, watching it alone. Yeah, and I, and especially a crowd that's probably even knows what what some of those scenes are coming. Uh, I would absolutely jump at the chance to see this with a with a live participating audience. I did watch it on my not quite so big a TV, but uh, I, but I I definitely had a lot of fun with it as well. But I could imagine you know getting that spontaneous reaction would be uh, a nice little bonus. Um, I, I don't think yeah. we need like Criterion viewers who are, have that highbrow mentality <laughs> that Dan mentioned, yeah. like. I, you know, there's John Waters in the collection, you know, oh, like right, there's a right. lot of, there's a lot of Waters-esque things going on here in this trilogy. So, you know, get on board with the, with the crude, crudeness. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's crude and lowbrow, but, but with a, a pretty searing intelligence behind it, I think that's, that's really what I, what I enjoy. It's like, he, he's not afraid to go there. There's nothing really to be afraid of. Just, just roll with it, you know? Um, now, maybe we don't need to go tail by tail uh, necessarily, but uh, let's maybe just kind of move ahead with the film and some of the other pieces. We've got The Wife of Bath's prologue. That's one where maybe I thought it, it did extend a little bit there, but uh, this is the woman who's been married several times. Um, she's basically got a, a new husband who's come into her life. Uh, he's kind of a bookworm and, and he sort of has a falling out with her 
I don't know. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of stuff to say about that particular tale, but I don't know. Maybe just, you guys. Just if you want to see Doctor Who naked, this is <laughs> yeah. the movie for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've read that in the reviews, and I've never really gotten into Doctor Who, but apparently that is kind of a uh, a point of of notoriety for that particular sequence. Well, the scene where wife of Bath literally goes from the funeral of her fourth husband. Mm-hmm. Yes, to the wedding, marrying her fifth husband. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, there's a cut from one shot to the other, but it almost plays like it's just one shot. She goes from one end of the church where there's a funeral, and she walks down to the other end of the church where they're all set up for the wedding. Yeah, and that always gets a big laugh with an audience. Yeah, that's a, that's a great moment happening simultaneously: the funeral of husband four and the wedding to husband five. Right. And so she's she's the. The, the type of kind of the, the headstrong, uh, somewhat shrewish woman, kind of in charge, uh, a ball buster. You know, some some people might might put you know that kind of terminology on her there. So yeah, it's it's an interesting performance, and I think the the woman who plays her is somebody of some notoriety. And well, that's Laura Betty. That's uh, that was Pasolini's you know basically best friend. I think you could say. Who yeah. Was, you know, running his foundation after he dies. Oh, okay. She was in uh, uh, Tiarima, and she's been in a couple of the other films, too. Okay. Uh, Blanking out at the moment. Uh, She might have had a little part in Cameron, too. But she's kind of a a big actress and and really close to passing. Yeah, she's got a a strong presence. I I thought she did a good job in that role. Um, The next one is The Reeves Tale. This is about the, the two young men who are sent to get some flower ground up and that gets into another sort of elaborate setup where they are you know um, being swindled by by the miller he's gonna substitute their flower for bran he sends them on a you know a horse chase uh, and the young men um, needing to spend the night because it took them so long to find their horse they end up uh, talking their way into you know bedding inside the chamber where everybody else is sleeping but through a little bit of mischief and and turn of circumstance they end up <laughs> getting into the beds of uh, the wife uh, of the miller and also his uh, lovely young daughter so it's a couple of lads out on a romp having a bit of an adventure again this is this is more like lightweight comedy with a little bit of a twist at the end uh, any particular moments that stood out for either of you there um just uh the maybe if we're jumping ahead of the art references but their butts hanging out the window is a very <laughs> okay. uh, Peter Bruegel image. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think, yeah, Brad. You know, you've done some nice kind of work behind the scenes, uh, sharing with us some of the artwork. Do you want to maybe just talk about some of the the, the period art pieces and Pasolini's incorporation of kind of prominent medieval masterpieces and 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 some of them very familiar works, others maybe a bit more obscure. But obviously, that's part of his his strategy here is incorporating period detail, artistic symbolism. Some of it, and actually, I don't think there was any British or English art that he drew from here. But it's still the, the only same thing period. Is, is uh, well, it's not the visual art, but it's the the folk tales, all the mm-hmm. chants and stuff, and songs. Those are the songs. Yeah, those are very uh, UK stuff. Um, I, did you want me to do that, or do you want yeah. to save that to the end? Because no. once we get into the Summoner's Tale, that's yeah. that comes. Okay, why, why don't we hold off on that a little bit then? then. Sure. Anything uh, for, for the Reeves Tale, Dan, that you want to toss in there? 
Well, I mean, I just kind of like the uh, the interaction between the two young men, you know, because yeah. Yeah. we were talking about Pasolini's internalized homophobia, you know, if it is ultimately uh, correct to say that's what's going on with him. Uh, but he certainly had a complex <clears throat> relationship to, home, to his homosexuality. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. But there's a scene where the two young men are on uh, on the same horse, and the one in the back uh, has like some bread that was you know baked with yeah. their own flour, and he just reaches around, and the other one uh, takes a bite of the of the roll out of his hands, and it's just you know so kind of casually, beautifully kind of homoerotic. Mm-hmm. There's an intimacy there that yeah. you wouldn't really have if they were just friends. At right. least from today's view, maybe it yeah. was different in the medieval ages. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I think Pasolini, you know, when he says that, you know, something, you know, is lost in the modern world, I think one of the things he thinks is lost is kind of pansexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is kind of one of the negative effects of the gay liberation uh, movements and people becoming more kind of hyper aware of homosexuality as such, you know, yeah. makes everyone kind of who doesn't want to be thought of as gay, you know, much less willing to be kind of intimate with other people of the same sex in ways yeah. that people yeah. used to be all the time. Um, yeah. Why are you putting your hand on my shoulder and wrapping it around my waist as we ride this horse together? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People yeah. are touchy or defensive. I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to do that for fear of mm-hmm. being thought of as gay. You know, like, yeah, this is some kind of a, a sexual come on rather than just, you know, two guys who've had a memorable <laughs> adventure kind of reveling in the moment. Right. But, you know, in the ancient world, I mean, I think Pasolini, and it gets even more homoerotic in Arabian mm-hmm. Nights, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you really kind of feel like everyone's having sex with everyone. There isn't mm. this kind of battle between heterosexuality and homosexuality that emerges. Mm. There's you know, with no labeling, right? Like, right. Theology, you know, by, by doctors. There was like uh, Foucault, who I think Pasolini probably, you know, knew personally, uh, French historian Michel Foucault, you know, who says, you know, the idea of the homosexual as a person, you know, was created in, you know, 1869, I want to say, uh, hmm. 69 or 79, you know, before that there was the sodomite. You know? Right. And, you know, it was a temporary aberration, not a, not something thought of almost as a species of person. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I, you know, I think Pasolini liked it better when homosexual, you know, when homosexuals were thought of as sodomites, and proudly so, maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, we've talked about a couple of, you know, young lads out on an adventure. And here's a, the next story. The Pardoner's Tale is a group of four. It starts off, winds up in three, and then there were none. <laughs> four, four young men who are kind of living on the wilder side of life, uh, hanging out in brothels. And not just being in brothels, but really making complete asses of themselves their 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 behavior is just pretty pretty gross pretty piggish all the way around um but it is a it is a an interesting scenario i mean it is a a, a den of depravity i guess you could say where uh you know pasolini is kind of just taking us around the various chambers 
we we talked a little bit about um, good looking uh, uh, actors and some who are not. There's one particular woman who's using a whip who seemed to be very nicely proportioned. I'll just throw that out there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think of that whole scene there? She uh, or not, not these young men who are you know base characters, uh, treacherous, venal, uh, you know, profane in, in most every sense. Uh, it, it maybe is another sort of moral or object lesson that Pasolini is giving us, again, coming out of Chaucer, and this is a one that's another pretty literal adaptation. Uh, these, these three young men, after one of their uh, buddies has been killed, uh, after, you're, you know, the guy's literally urinating from a balcony onto the crowd below. Uh, understandably, he's not much longer for this world after he pulls that little stunt. Uh, but but they hear that uh, death has taken this man, and so they are out there to get their revenge on Mr. Death. <laughs> uh, interesting uh, little play on words there. But uh, I don't know, what, what are you guys' observations of this film, of, the, of this segment of the film? And no shame, David. This is by far the hottest sequence. You, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's something in the sequence for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever your kink, there it is. It's <laughs> going to be somewhere in there. But uh, yeah, but what, what did you think? How, how did the story function? This is kind of getting us towards the the conclusion of the film. We've got a, you know, a, one more pretty epic sequence ahead of us. But this is kind of one of the you know, the, the culminating segments there as these three young men basically show kind of their, their inner corruption and, and turn on each other and uh, kind of in some ways perhaps get what they had coming based on how they'd been conducting themselves. I mean, I, I would say for this, it's often said that the Canterbury Tales is the darkest out of the three because it's the most focused on death. And there are some cruel, I mean, the Friar's Tale is very cruel as far as death is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find this to be a very playful examination on death. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. And even though everyone kind of dies in the end, um, it, it's still a joke. It's still funny. Um, yeah. uh, and that's that's what I really liked about the sequence, about the story. Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah, it's really fun, I think, until right at the very, very end. You know, then it kind of gets disturbing. Like the one character, uh, I can't remember his name, but, you know, after he's been poisoned by the other character who is now dead, uh, you know, he like, he's vomiting and the poison coming up. Chunks. (laughs) Right, right. And then he like, falls down dead and his face like falls on his own vomit right and, it's and the other one looks like he's shitting he you know. yeah. right right so they're getting it from both ends the poison is finding its way out <laughs> they both like fall dead in their own filth basically. yeah yeah and so you know i mean that, that, that one it, it turns dark you know yeah and it's driven by this covetousness i mean they they found a a, a bucket of treasure you know a a treasure chest coins scattered all over the ground nobody knows about it but they've got to figure out how they can just suddenly show up with all this money so that's where the the little uh conniving sets in because they send the the younger guy to go get some some drink some wine 
while he's away, the two guys conspire to split the treasure and kill him. After they've taken the the poisoned wine, they didn't realize that they've sealed their own death warrant. And you know, and again, it's 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 you know the the old man that they meet along the way. He says, "Oh, you know, tell us where this death is." I was like, "Well, you go over behind that tree. That's where you'll find it." That's it's just kind of got that little uh, proverbial wisdom, you know, vibe to how the story um, unfolds and and how the old man kind of you know again, kind of wishes the comeuppance upon, upon right. these young jerks. Because they're, they're no good nicks, which makes, yeah, exactly. for me, makes their death funny because they, yeah. they just destroy themselves and they're they're initially so focused on blaming all of this on that old man mm-hmm. um, that it further makes us want to see bad things happen to them. And they do in, right. like, in I think, spectacularly, hilariously, hilarious ways. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and talking about spectacular, let's go ahead to talk about The Summoner's Tale, which is another story of um, religious hypocrisy and abuse of authority and greed and avarice, all all of those, uh, all those (laughs) uh, attributes that, uh, you know, perhaps been, you know, brought up one way or another throughout the course of this film and and certainly are are pretty familiar altogether. But here we have uh, basically a a priest or some kind of ecclesiastical official. Uh, There's a wealthy man seems to be on his deathbed. And uh, this, uh, this uh, friar is trying to get, you know, kind of an extra contribution or get access to whatever wealth this man might still have not yielded up to the church. Uh, there's what one point he peeks into what he thought was the treasure box at the foot of the man's bed, finds that it's empty, suddenly feels appalled, like maybe my rich prospect here isn't quite as loaded as I thought. But he <laughs> he's lured in by the dead or the dying man's uh, you know statement to find his most precious gift uh, directly underneath his ass. <laughs> so, it's, and we have another uh, you know vintage fart joke to kind of seal the deal, um, and, which provokes the friar's outrage uh, until he moments later has an angelic visitor who has a special little. Uh, trip in store for for the bishop or for, for the friar to uh, you know kind of take his journey to the next world and see kind of what his ultimate destiny is so brad why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh incredible unforgettable tableau that pasolini puts together for us sure so um this was the only sequence not shot in england um so it was shot actually on the slopes of mount etna in order to get that sort of great black soil, volcanic yeah. lava you know, flows, brim, brimstone, yeah. absolute yeah. look. Um, so uh, it's mentioned um, on the, the Blu-ray. So there's a, there's a great interview with Dante Freddy, who was the production designer for uh, the trilogy of life. And he talks about some of the sort of artistic references. And uh, as we had talked about in the Decameron, Pasolini loved um, mining um, a visual art as references. He um, he did this, I mean, uh, you can go all the way back to Mama Roma um, as far as the ones that come immediately to my mind, but he did this in the Decameron um, and mining painters like uh, Giotto and Peter Bruegel. And sort of once again, um, those elements come back here into play. So in this, um, I'll, I'll just start briefly, just the image that, uh, of of Pasolini as Chaucer, sort of writing, we get little inserts of him writing the mm-hmm. Canterbury Tales, 
um, and they directly reference um, an Antonella de Messina painting called Saint Jerome in his study, um, which is that same profile point of view of him, of St. Jerome sitting in his uh, writing chair. It's this great big thing with a desk. Um, and so St. Jerome was a famous scribe, uh, very pious. And I think there's a little bit of tongue in cheek here with Geoffrey Chaucer writing these like lurid tales of, of uh, sexual deviancy, you know, with his sort of feet up on the table and chuckling well, when he's reading the Decameron and <laughs> chuckling at their dirty stories. But um, to get back to uh, the sequence in hell. So once again, um, he's referencing Giotto and uh, Giotto's uh, fresco, The Last Judgment, which he did in the Decameron. There was a, there's a vision of it where you see the angels and the, the Madonna in the middle. Um, but this one, he's sort of focused on the hell sequence of this image in the the multicolored devils that we get in this hellscape that are red, blue, black. That is directly referencing with their with their big wings. That is directly mm-hmm. referencing uh, Giotto's um, Last Judgment. Um, there's also uh, Hieronymus Bosch, which is another influence. So he's now dipping his toes and he's grabbing references from the the Flemish masters. Um, and Dante Ferretti actually says in that video um, that from uh, Hermes Bosch's The Last Judgment, there is sort of a hell wall with a gate in the background. There's several of them. Um, and they were deliberately trying to re- re- uh, copy that here on the slopes. Yeah, it's like this big uh, wooden structure. It's not really focused on, but you see it in some of the wide shots. So it's not just the raw, you know, black you know lava stone and, and all of that when you see the right. smoke coming up but yeah there's like this big uh, it was like a castle wall or what was what was that structure again uh, yeah it's it's some sort of like fort like like a, a city wall or a medieval yeah. castle wall preventing um, escape it, like it, you're it, stuck it. there you're, you're never going to get out right, right? yeah exactly. and there's a, there's a bed in the middle of the scene as well yeah um, so i i had another another of the um flemish masters uh, Harry Met de Blais um, painted uh, a painting called Inferno, which is, mm-hmm. again, is a lot of the similar sort of idea that Hieronymus Bosch, Peter Bruegel, and here with um, and Harry Met de Blais, these, these big, enormous uh, landscapes with little characters in them. They're called drolleries, if I'm correct, where little happenings, like little funny things that are happening to people and they're usually like mm-hmm. demons torturing people with through various instruments. Um, they weren't just hell versions. Peter Bruegel did like snowscapes and village scenes, and right. stuff. but there were these little figures doing all this stuff. Um, a lot of the behavior in these types of paintings are ass related. Um, <laughs> a lot of the comedy comes from sticking things or removing things from people's behind. Right. So again, the, the giant, um, devil Satan that we get as the sort of like set piece that's farting out the friars. Such a yes. shocking image. My partner walked by the TV and he's like, <laughs> what the heck is this? And I'm like, you picked the right moment. Um, <laughs> but that's all that ass related jokes are mm-hmm. straight from, from these Flemish masters. Uh, well, and, and Chaucer basically says the same things. I mean, and, and it's in the uh, prologue 
I think to the is it to the Summer's Tale, uh, he describes friars being shit out of Satan's arsehole. You know, I mean that's that's Chaucerian language there. This is not Pasolini embellishing or blowing it up. I was I was pretty. Um, I don't know, actually pretty pleased to see that this was Chaucerian uh, imagery, not, not right. Pasolinian, right? And but then, also and, the, the medieval art uh, kind of giving it that visual. Sure, because um, Pasolini, again, like Giotto, folding in a giant image of Satan that's usually sort of the anchor of these hell, mm-hmm. saint, uh, hell set pieces. The famous one that Bosch did where it's like kind of a broken egg on a fork yeah. and all this weird mm-hmm. stuff, that's Satan. Sort of, so you have one sort of giant uh, Satan figure to sort of tie all of this madness together. Hmm. Dan, what are some of your thoughts about this? Um, again, very unique and unforgettable scene <laughs> in Pasolini's over there. I don't know. It's yeah. I mean, it's those <laughs> things that kind of makes you want to just go. I've got nothing. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, very clearly is uh you know based on you know our work that brad's talked about as anyone who's you know ever thumbed through an art history book uh, you know will recognize uh because those are very famous images of course uh there's something kind of shocking about it. I mean, when you see it as a 14th century painting on a wall or even words written in an old manuscript, you know, that's been passed along, this is this is modern. <laughs> this is visual. This is kinetic and, you know, kind of burns a burns a hole in your brain, uh, if, especially if you either weren't expecting it or didn't think he was going to go quite as so far as he did. But he does not hold back. But it's also in keeping with the sort of his themes of linking this medieval past with mm-hmm. our times now, right? Turning yeah. these ancient uh, frescoes and paintings uh, cinematic and making them uh, follow the rules of cinematic language, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's part. It's still part and parcel. I mean, there's been lots of visions of hell in you know Hollywood movies and movies all over the world, but it's the fact that he's, I think, specifically like mining key images from famous uh painters of that era that he really does sort of connect uh, the past and the present well and the critique itself i mean these friars are basically flecks of shit out of the devil's ass i mean that's right. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty low blow <laughs> you know, that's a verdict for you right there and here he is criticizing the catholic church once again yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though he's not, you know, completely, you know, denounced it or, you know, refrained from his own participation. And again, maybe it's a cultural hold. He's he's not resigning or, you know, becoming uh, an outspoken, I don't know, sort of anti-Catholic. He's he's basically, you know, critiquing the church for the stands that it's taken with the hopes that perhaps somehow they'll change. At least that's that's how it seems to me. I don't know. Maybe Dan, you've got a little bit more of a scholarly familiarity. What was Pasolini's relationship with Catholicism, as far as the institution, as well as his own sort of beliefs about sort of the the substance of these spiritual teachings and such? Well, again, it's like his you know relationship to his homosexuality. It's very mm-hmm. sort of complicated and yeah, yeah, and uh you know, he seemed to be a very fervent Catholic, yet at the same time he was an atheist. Yeah. 
so uh, he, you know, was attracted to you know many aspects of the religion, and of course, he made you know his gospel, gospel yeah. to Matthew. But it's interesting, you know, he insisted uh, that it be called the Gospel according to Matthew, and he was very upset when in the United States they added the word saint. Mm-hmm. Right. So in America, yeah. it's the gospel according to St. Matthew, and he thought it should be called just the gospel according to Matthew, hmm. which in a way is kind of a, a criticism of, of Catholicism and kind of, you know, the Vatican politics and the notion that people, you know, uh, acquire sainthood, you know, oftentimes. Oh, sure. Political. Yeah as opposed to spiritual reasons. It fits um, all all into that whole bourgeois power politics aspect that's you know, that has, you know, I think clearly and arguably, you know, corrupted you know the institution and had a pretty damaging effect on so many people for so many centuries really. Right. But yeah, so that basically gets us to the conclusion of the film. Um, I don't know if, if there's more. I guess I'd like to just sort of say, you know, what's what's your verdict? I mean, this, you know, we've talked about the reputation of the Canterbury Tales as maybe being Pasolini's worst or maybe the weakest of the three in this trilogy. Uh, I have actually not seen Arabian Nights yet. I'm kind of making my way oh, for wow. that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get there. And, and I've, I've read a bit about it, so I'm not completely blind of what to expect but um i i thought this was a a really excellent uh thought-provoking and and to me a very successful film at least it felt like pasolini's ambitions were realized here and i i thought it was a very credible and and um probably the best adaptation of the canterbury tales that i'm aware of maybe the only one i don't know if it's you know it's it's you know, unlike like the Arabian Nights, which has been used in many films, you know, some of those stories, I don't know that the Canterbury Tales has been uh, adapted, you know, this specifically, you know, there's a Powell and Pressburger, a Canterbury Tale, which uses the journey to Canterbury as kind of a plot device there. But uh, don't forget yeah. the uh, Heath Ledger action movie, A Knight's Tale. Okay, now is that based on Canterbury? Is that based on Chaucer's material? Okay, it, I mean it is. There is actually a character in that movie who is Geoffrey Chaucer. Okay, okay, it's been a long time since I saw that, but that might be something I want to check out sometime. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> yeah. There's been a number of television adaptations of the Canterbury. Okay, was like for the BBC. Yeah, um, I could see the BBC doing some kind of you know recreation, you know, adaptation type of thing, you know probably tamping down some of the bodier elements, of course. Right. But I mean, I think it's kind of a perfect example of, of Pasolini's art in a way, you know, this, mm-hmm. this really kind of multifaceted juggling of disparate elements, you know, really yeah. kind of rough hewn filmmaking on the one hand, you know, where the shots are deliberately, you know, oftentimes poorly composed and, you know, this is his cinema of poetry, you know, where yeah. he wants you to feel the presence of someone behind the camera all the time. Yeah. And I mean, I felt there were there were actually some really beautiful shots. I think the, the, those those shots were they're kind of in that kind of big medieval 
picnic uh, fair situation. Even the deaths of those three young men, kind of in the golden hour there with the sun setting behind them and their kind of profiles and, and silhouette as they kind of do each other in. I mean, they, that was actually a very evocative scene and, and yeah. well shot. Uh, the, the big scene with the the bath's wife when they're burning an effigy and it's like this big, is that the mm-hmm. same picnic mm-hmm. scene? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's very mm-hmm. elaborate. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The other thing I, would, I wanted to say, like, it's all of those, all of those things are are there, but also like I f- still feel some Italian neorealist roots, like the he's oh, yeah. handheld in a lot of those sequences, a lot of the sequences, and a lot of them feel like sh- you know shooting quick and dirty, that kind of that kind mm-hmm. of feel to it. And you know, and, and these aren't cheap films. You know, this film, uh, you know, I read. Uh, an interview with Pasolini from the time it was made, they spent in today's currency uh, well over a million dollars on the costumes alone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and that shows. And, and a lot of the people who worked on this film, you know, talked about uh, Dante Ferretti, you know, like, you know, he ends up winning four Oscars when he comes to America later and works. Mm-hmm you know, films for Scorsese and Sweeney Todd and a lot of films. I mean, these were made by top, top craftsmen. Yeah. Who had a lot of money to work with. So, well, and I think, rough. and that comes through in the restoration here, which I, my understanding is that the, you know, up until this Blu-ray, up until this restoration, it was very, very difficult to see a quality print of this film. Um, and that was the case almost all along, other than maybe the original film festival showings. So, you know, people who've maybe known this film for much longer than I have uh, found the this box set a real revelation of films that they maybe had kind of dismissed because the the presentation was was so flawed. Uh, the, you know, prints were faded, et cetera. The, yeah, definitely, it doesn't feel like there's any skimping as far as the you know the, the set dressings and the and the production designs, the the garments that the characters wore. I mean, it's all very immersive and and i think that that had a big effect on me it it, it never felt like you know medieval dress up which is right. i think you, you were talking about like the you know the agony and the ecstasy or or even like i i think dan you've, you've seen some of these maria montez movies like i was watching the arabian nights the other night which is you know uh completely escapist 40s technicolor um but but a pretty delightful film for its own sake if you can get past some of the gross ethnic stereotyping and you know kind of condescension that that (laughs) informs those films um totally different type of experience but you just never felt like uh you know dressing up and and play acting is going on here and i mean these films already feel based on the way the Pasolini shot them, that everyone needs a bath. So like <laughs> adding, yeah. adding like gross restorations and, and, you know, b- muddy prints and this adds to that <laughs> feeling. I can understand yeah. why people were like, Oh, what is with this movie? It's just like yeah. brown everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, and the fact that some scenes are really kind of, you know, messy, mm-hmm. you know, that the camera kind of sometimes is handheld and wobbles and, and the fact that, you know, like a lot of the times the sky is just kind of a dull yellow or it's just mm-hmm. kind of white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're kind of like, okay, you know, that doesn't look very pretty. 
But then the effect of that is, you know, kind of later in the film where you do get a few shots of like a beautiful blue sky, it looks all the more beautiful because Mm -hmm. it's just kind of appeared in a film where, you know, he's not trying to do David Lean where every single shot is beautiful. It's (laughs) magnificent, right. Like some of the shots are kind of ugly and you're looking at, you know, people walking through mud and shit, you know, and the sky Mm -hmm. is just gray. But then all of a sudden, you know, there's a beautiful shot. Yeah. And, and the, the fantastical sequences are, are heightened that much more because of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it feels like, you know, he, he wasn't super meticulous in terms of, you know, countless takes to get just the right, you know, look or emotion or, you know, uh, the pristine shot, you know, he, he shoots the scenes. This is what we've got. This is what we work with. And then he, you know, mixes it around in the editing. So, you know, we've had a good conversation here. I guess I just want to kind of give uh, opportunities for final words. Maybe we've already shared some of that. But uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, um, you know, I think we're all three on board with recommending this film, the trilogy. Any any final comments or summaries that you want to throw out there? Well, I'd just say uh, it's a little hard to do, but watch the, the English version of the film. It's yeah. The Italian version. Mm-hmm. The actors were all or almost all speaking English. Like if you look, you can read their lips. Uh, yeah, I I listened to the English. Uh, I did listen to some of the Italian, but I really found like why not just put the English on? It's all post sync anyways. Uh, right. I thought that was a perfectly fine experience. Well, Pasolini went to great lengths to pick specific accents for specific people. You know, mm-hmm. like in. Uh, uh, the cook's tale. He has them have Cockney accents in uh, uh, one of the tales. Are Scottish accents, and all of those are chosen mm-hmm. liberally. I mean, Pasolini yeah. really knew a lot about England. A lot of people who criticized it said, "Well, what does Pasolini know about England?" That's why the film isn't very good. But, but you figure he did his homework. He just seems like that kind of guy. He's just not going to go waltzing in there. Um, he's he's going to research. And Derek Jarman, you know, the British queer filmmaker, you know, who was very much connected to his own kind of English heritage. You know, this this is what was one of his 10 favorite films, not just Pasolini, but of all time. Yeah. This was his favorite I could see film, that. film and one of his 10 favorite films ever made. And, you know, so if this film just, you know, was you know, uh, an insult to Chaucer or, hmm. you know, didn't understand, you know, Britain at all, you know, Pasol- or, or Derek Jarman would not have loved it as much as he did. You know, yeah. Pasolini knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Brad? What are some of your concluding thoughts on Canterbury Tales? Um, I, I just think that, uh, you know, when this film was released, back then you know the arabian nights was still to come sallow was still to come um so i really like that you know this box set right we have the trilogy of life i just think that it's it's a great opportunity to see the canterbury tales in relation to the movie that comes before and the movie that comes after it right Mm -hmm. so uh these three films are always constantly in a dialogue with each other and so i think like when this film came out, if people complained uh, that it was his worst, that it was too dark, too cynical, 
um, you know, when you place it now in this box set and you know that Arabian Nights comes after it, which is far more fantastical, uh, far more like flights of fancy, a lot more fun. It's mm-hmm. my favorite of the, of the three mm-hmm. that I, I, I think that it, it breaks it up. It changes, it changes the mood, modulates the tone. I think that's important in order to, for the, all three films to work together and to communicate with each other as a trilogy, mm. that they're not just all repeating the same thing three times, right? right. That he's, he's modulating tone even in this big arc of a trilogy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that definitely entices me, and maybe I'll have to bump my uh, viewing of Pasolini's Arabian Nights uh, up, up the schedule a little bit now, wait till we get to the films of 1974 in this podcast. So, okay, well, I think I want to wrap up the episode now. Um, so, Dan, let's go ahead and give you a chance just to kind of, you know, share any thoughts, projects you're working on, uh, you know, where can listeners maybe see any of your work? Um, I think I've got a link to your uh, university website there, but uh, yeah, just kind of fill us in on what you're up to. Well, I'm going to uh, two Pasolini conferences uh, in October again because it's uh, Pasolini yeah, centenary. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually actually had to turn down a third one because it's the same time as the other as one of the other. Are things. you presenting or just attending? Yeah, I'm presenting at both. Oh, cool. uh, one's at the University of Chicago on October. 20th and then the other one is literally two days later on the 22nd at the university of indiana uh in bloomington uh you know and my book on pasolini doesn't really go into canterbury tales much it's more about his mythic films uh medias rex and notes towards an african orestes but uh you know that's available from barnes and noble and amazon and the Wayne State University Press website. Cool. I will get the links so that listeners can can look into that. That's great. Uh, and thank you very much, Dan. It's really good having you back on again. Brad, how about giving us a little update what you're working on these days? Um, yeah, so these days I've been focusing um, mostly on myself as a painter, as an artist. Um, so I have been working away on these massive oil paintings that I've done, yeah. and I'm in a show right now, actually. So yeah. uh, you can... Uh, so I'm showing at the art gallery uh, Maison de Poivre, which is on uh, an area, area called Base 31. It used to be an air base here in southern Ontario, but now it's sort of being converted to a, a multi-purpose art space. Um, and that's located on Prince Edward County, uh, so just east of Toronto. It's a lovely winery, little towns. It's a very, very popular tourist destination. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm sure, uh, just outside Pic- the city of Picton on Prince Edward County. So I'm showing there, uh, from now until, uh, October 26, three of my large pieces that deal with, um, retextualizing Greek and Roman mythology into modern times with modern people, um, are there. So yeah, if any listeners are in the area, I would love you to come by see. And you can follow me on uh, Instagram at Mr. Brad McD, where I post all of my uh, artistic updates. That's cool. Well, definitely. Uh, well, congratulations on the show as well. That's that's pretty outstanding. So both of you have got some very interesting stuff going on and uh, nice to be able to share those little updates and insights with our listeners. So, okay, well, the next episode of this podcast is going to be a double feature. Uh, Richard Doyle and I are going to talk about Greaser's Palace, uh, which is Robert Downey Sr. film, and Chow Manhattan about the 
the E.D. Sedgwick, uh, part of the Andy Warhol scene. Two movies kind of coming out of New York City, uh, both streaming on the Criterion channel. Uh, so that's what we got in store uh, for our next episode, episode 126. On this uh, weekend in which uh, we have just observed the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, we've got England on our mind and uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, kind of uh, a subject matter that kind of coincides with some of the current events as well. So yeah, uh, anything up there in Toronto, a part of the part of the dominion there, uh, Brad, that's going on as far as the Queen's passing and all of that? Um, I think we've been told that the day of the funeral um, is Canada's day of mourning. So we're all going to have a day off. (laughs) Well, all right. Nice little perks or benefits, I guess, if you will, for the solemnity of the occasion. So, all right, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, we'll be talking to you all soon, folks. Thanks for listening in. Bye-bye. Bye. Never saw this girl, my